welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Elizabeth Shackelford, Senior Fellow on U.S. Foreign Policy at the Chicago Council and author of a recent book, The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age. She was a career diplomat at the State Department until 2017 when she resigned in protests. She served in Poland, South Sudan, Somalia, and in D.C. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. In your book, you tell a story of your time as a Foreign Service officer until your resignation, and that whole journey is an education in the hard realities of U.S. foreign policy and the challenges of conducting diplomacy. And there are valuable insights all along the way. But before we get into all that, I wonder if you can just give listeners a sense of that story and the perspective that you took from it. So yes, in a word, I started out um, as a U.S. diplomat, uh, very naive about our role in the world. I was thrilled and excited to get my dream job to go and be part of the civilian army, bringing American greatness to, to other countries. And it didn't take very long to realize that not all of that was was great, even or even in our own national interest. I uh, I went in. I I've been working um, in the field, so I was pretty uh, familiar with you know how U.S. embassies worked. I had been a consultant for U.S. aid projects for uh, for about three years before I joined the State Department, and that was where I got um, intrigued by the idea. I felt that the folks working on the policy side really had the greatest opportunity for influence um, around the world and for for using U.S. tools and influence to to really strong ends. So I uh, left a world of, of legal and regulatory consulting on international affairs and joined the State Department, uh, excited to go to developing countries to see what the U.S. could do on the policy side. Instead, for my first tour, they sent me to Poland, and I'm probably the only person who is really depressed to get sent to Europe for my first tour. Um, I thought it was going to be boring. Uh, as it turns out, Poland was 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 pretty functional back then. Um, and it was a great place to learn how an embassy works, what all of the uh, agencies are that are involved in U.S. foreign policy overseas. It was totally functional, uh, which was why it was so obvious when I moved on to my second post in South Sudan, how dysfunctional some of our, our missions are, how understaffed, how under-resourced and um, and uh, you know, just just not um, not functional. So I, um, after two years in Poland, I got my dream job to go to South Sudan, which even as a you know kind of baby foreign service officer in um, kind of baby diplomacy training back at the Foreign Service Institute before I went to my first post had been the uh, the place I wanted to go to. I wanted to go to Cuba. It was the newest country in the world. It was our newest embassy in the world, and it was a place where I thought. You know, if we can't get it right here with tremendous amounts of U.S. resources in a place that really has no uh, strategic interest to U.S. foreign policy, um, it has combination of of um, you know of just kind of goodwill in Congress and high level interest that you don't often see with the U.S. and African countries. Uh, so I was I was really excited to get that opportunity in my second tour, and um, that was when I really started to open my eyes to. Um, how U.S. foreign policy was not what I thought it was. Yeah, you explain a process of what seems to me like disillusionment. And I get the sense that you went in with a certain image of U.S. foreign policy and was quickly muddied um, by what you saw. And uh, when you're in South Sudan, for example, you saw corruption in the regime and some of the perverse incentives that can arise from U.S. aid. And on issues like human rights, you soon came to understand that America wasn't so exceptional. And I think a lot of Americans relate to that process of disillusionment. Um, so talk about how it is that you came uh, to this work with that idea and uh, why, why the idea, which is so popular and I think so prevalent among ordinary folks who aren't nerds like us uh, on US <laughs> foreign policy, uh, and, and why it's so drastically different from the reality. You know, I probably had uh, greater expectations uh, for our role in, in human rights than, than even most Americans do. And to this day, it shocks me to look back and, and think of how blinded I was to where we really were coming from. Because, I mean, I basically came of age in the war on terror years. You know, we, we saw, and I was very critical of a lot of what we were doing in the name of 
you know, counterterrorism efforts and, and U.S. national security. So um, looking back, it seems pretty silly that I had these expectations that in a place like South Sudan, we would be um, so altruistic. But but, you know, it comes back to if we couldn't get it right in South Sudan, where could we? And and when I was in Washington preparing to go out to post and doing the rounds, as you do with, you know, the, the different desk officers and different NGOs that are involved in um, and, and lobbying for activities and, and actions in South Sudan, um, I was I was largely kind of fed this narrative. And it was this good guys versus bad guys narrative of, you know, the, the Sudanese civil war and the Southerners being the oppressed and they're fighting for their freedom. Um, you'd had this big lobbying effort about the, you know, with kind of a Christian lobbying effort um, and a, a uh, which combined forces with the human rights lobbying effort that wanted to end this really long running civil war. They wanted to protect the Christian Southerners from oppression from Khartoum. And that really aligned with uh, U.S kind of U.S. interests opposing Khartoum. And, uh, but it, it really seemed like a, you know, like a pretty clear picture of good and bad, um, good versus evil, I guess. Um, and, you know, I was coming in, you know, just a couple of years after South Sudan's independence, which was this great uh, foreign policy accomplishment of the U.S. government that seemed like it was just for the good, for good purposes. We weren't getting a lot out of South Sudan. So it, it took very little time once you arrived on the ground to realize that, that narrative was not very accurate. And I'll say it was maybe in my first week, one of the, uh, one of the uh, staff at the embassy, he was Equatorian. And I remember Equatorians are the small kind of collection of smaller um, ethnic groups in the country who really have largely stayed kind of outside of the big war between the two largest ethnic groups you know, the, in, in the uh, civil war, the most recent civil war, the Nuer and the Dinka. And I remember him telling me that things were better when he was in Khartoum because he wasn't a second class citizen there like he was in in Juba. And it blew my mind because you know I had been fed this narrative that we were helping the Southerners fight against Khartoum and Khartoum was the bad guys. Um, and that was that was when I started peeling back the layers of the onion and realizing that that story I'd been uh, that narrative I'd, I'd come to Juba with was, uh, was really not only oversimplified, but but really false in a lot of ways. So that's when I started, which was quite early on, just taking a closer look at you know these the different ethnic conflicts that were going on even then pre-war around the country, um, and started asking you know why we weren't asking harder questions about the government's role there. Um, so it was a surprising period, um, but it happened really just within weeks of me arriving. What's the kind of official logic behind we really need to support this regime, whether it's South Sudan or some other case? Um, we need to let, give them U.S. aid and maybe other forms of support, but kind of looking away from the stuff that maybe if we were up to our own standards would require us not to support them. What is the, the justification? Why do they feel it's so necessary? So there are a lot of countries where we can easily point to other U.S. national security interests. So Somalia was my last posting in the Foreign Service. And that was, you know, while I disagree largely with, with how that has driven our positions in Somalia and in other countries in the region, at least people could logically point to saying, well, we need to, to partner with them on counterterrorism, so we're willing to look the other way on other issues. And that's the case with a lot of countries in this region. Uganda and Kenya and Ethiopia all provide you know, troops that help us fight terrorism in Somalia, for example. So that's that's often the issue. This was why South Sudan was such a curious case for me. There are no other conceivable ulterior motives there for the U.S. government. Yes, there is oil. It is not very important. It is not very high quality. It is not something that we have focused on. Um, sure, there are some U.S. businesses involved, but that really was never what was driving it. This is why I find the case so interesting, and and this is why I've concluded that inertia is a really strong um, uh, part of our foreign policy. What often happens is that we choose, we choose winners, we choose losers, we, we choose people to support and we choose partners. And in the African continent, this has happened over and over again. On our, particularly our kind of democratic initiatives, 
We like to make simple narratives that are easy to sell. We like to choose our partners. And then we are with them through and through. You would think that we were not a very powerful country uh, with how little we are willing to uh, to push back on some of the actions. Um, South Sudan kind of falls in falls falls into this category, uh, but it certainly wasn't a new activity. Uh, you look back into the 1990s, and Susan Rice very famously um, was was an advocate of the new African leaders. You know, you're talking about the the leaders in Ethiopia, Uganda, Eritrea, um, where else? Uh, but uh, in in the region, you had this sense that okay, these are the folks we're going to partner with to to bring uh, to bring the continent up. And once we'd selected them as partners, it's it's not as though they could do no wrong, but we were just very hesitant to be critical of our friends. And this happened in South Sudan. Um, and it's remarkable how much it made us unwilling to even admit that our that our choices were flawed, or not even flawed, but that the situation had changed. And I'll, I'll take this back to just even the most like low level on the ground foreign policy decisions that we make. The Human Rights Report. Uh, we do one annually in every country in the world. It is a congressionally mandated report that we do. And we had trouble being honest in our human rights, in our you know, early human rights reports on South Sudan about some of the atrocities that were happening. And we, uh, there was this push to kind of soften our language in being critical of, of the South Sudanese administration because you know it was some combination of we didn't want we didn't want the American public to think that this wasn't the, the success that we had made it out to be. We didn't want the region to feel that way. Um, and in some ways, we just didn't want to admit to ourselves. I think that there's a lot of personal involvement in some of these successes. Um, and the South, South Sudan, uh, the independence in South Sudan was really considered an American success. And that made it very difficult to admit to uh, the cracks in the system that appeared very early on, which we ignored uh, for several years. That's fascinating. I think inertia is one of the most under-rated uh, 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 problems with the way we carry things out. Uh, there's almost as a kind of path dependence that mm -hmm. arises out of initial decisions and you know a combination of politics, protocol, and you know the the simplistic heuristics that we use to describe our role in the world. Um, that's fascinating. You write about the imbalance of resources devoted to diplomacy versus the military. You directly experienced some of that, uh, some especially audacious examples with sequestration and the Trump administration's dramatic increase in military spending and simultaneous deep cuts at the State Department. But this kind of imbalance actually goes back a long way. So talk about this imbalance and how it actually ends up manifesting in our foreign policy. Absolutely. I mean, the, the imbalance is... You know, it's interesting to me because you know, people look at the the nine eleven period, the post nine eleven period, and and they see this. You know, we've we've had this tremendous increase in our military footprint, and there's not an appreciation for the fact that as we increase our military footprint and our military role, you shouldn't take from the side of diplomacy and development, which which you know comes hand in hand. Every you know American military leadership understands the need for that kind of increase as well, um, but uh, I think. You know, uh, kind of budgetary needs doesn't understand that. So what you end up having is with increased military activity, you have less of a um, you you have less uh, of a of a diplomatic footprint if you do not also increase that up. So so what you have at the end of the day is let's look at South Sudan as an example. Um, in South Sudan, most Americans would probably be surprised to know that we've had uh, a, a military assistance program with them for for quite a number of years. Um, primarily based on you know, kind of the border region with Uganda and some um, outdated uh, contests that we were involved in in an early stage. Not particularly sure why, but uh, we get really committed to these military partnerships. We we find they build our relationship with the government and they, they build goodwill with that government. Whether or not it builds goodwill with the people who are subject to that military, um, that's a completely separate story. Uh, but while we're resourcing that and our military is able to get in other parts of a country, if we're not also resourcing diplomats and development and increase there as well, then what you start to see is that the face of the of the U.S. in these other countries is really one of men in, in camouflage primarily. Um, and that changes the perception of it. But what it really means for me as a diplomat in Juba, for example, is that you know we don't have the resources we need to function well in a conflict or post-conflict zone. 
Um, that means that you're paying for me to be on the ground. But, and this is an example I write about in my book, quite frequently, we didn't have enough vehicles and, and drivers um, on, on staff to be able to take me to the meetings that I was in the country to be able to serve. I frequently had to draw straws with USAID or state colleagues to see who gets the car tonight uh, to go to you know, a different place. And, and, and these meetings and these um, engagements and building relationships is what diplomacy is about. So if you don't have access to that, then there's really no point in having us out there in the first place. Um, some other resource-related issues, and I really take this back to prioritization, is that uh, you know we we didn't have a particularly secure compound there. We're talking about right in the aftermath of, of Benghazi. I mean, we were a year after Benghazi at that point. Um, our our security in in Juba was was not excellent. We had a perimeter wall that was deteriorating rapidly, and about three months into the wars, after the war started in late December. 2013, uh, our perimeter wall of our residential compound just crumbled. And because it was so hard to get people in to build it to spec, we had a gaping hole in our, in our compound wall for about two months, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, meanwhile, uh, we have, you know, we have ample, uh, supplies and resources for this small military program that was going on. And, and you know, um, far be it for me to say how that was really serving our national security interests in the in the country. Um, I have <laughs> I have even more stories about resource issues going into my time in Somalia, where uh, you know we couldn't even get a plane to fly around the country for you know the first year and a half that I was there. Uh, meanwhile, our military colleagues were uh, front and center everywhere, um, even being able to make their way to the presidential palace in downtown Mogadishu, where. Not a single one of our diplomats was allowed to go because they simply wouldn't give us the permissions and the resources we need to travel around and do the work of diplomacy uh, in a challenging location. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like to be having these insights about the brokenness of our approach to the world, uh, but doing so in an environment that uh, where dissent is, is uh, discouraged. Many people argue one thing we need at state is diversity. And, you know, actually it's true to me, our multiracial and multicultural population is, can be a major asset in something like diplomacy when you have to go abroad and understand the world better. Uh, but I wonder a little bit about the state of diversity of views at the Department of State. You famously resorted to the so-called dissent channel something you regarded as a, as a last resort uh, to voice your concerns, and eventually you felt compelled to resign. So tell us what it's like to work in that environment and also uh, how this impacts the execution of U.S. foreign policy if we can't fully debate and scrutinize and ask questions about the way we do things. Yeah, the dissent channel is such an interesting tool. And the fact that the State Department has this mechanism is unique. And I, I've had this conversation with you know colleagues and counterparts in, in different US government agencies and you know in the Pentagon. And it's it's kind of a it's a storied tool. I mean, people have heard about it before and and they're very impressed by this concept that we have this formal mechanism by which, you know, any any officer in the State Department can 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 register officially your complaint about our policy. It's it's policy oriented, and uh, the way the mechanism works again sounds pretty impressive. You know, you you write your piece, you write your cable. Uh, that's how we communicate with Washington, right? Um, and you you submit it through this particular channel, and then it gets it gets distributed. And it, I mean, it goes to the the secretary's desk in some form or another. Um, it goes to several other high ranking officials, and they are required. Someone is required uh, to come back with a formal response. So somebody is at the very least inconvenienced enough to have to write something to formally respond to your complaint. Um, what I found in practice, which again, I mean, should I be surprised? No, it's not as though I filed a dissent cable and should have expected a response back. You know, yes, you know, mid level officer Lizzie Shackelford, you you're certainly right. We're going to change our entire approach to South Sudan. Of course, that's not going to happen, but. What I found surprising was, was how it, it simply did not generate anything beyond a defensive reaction. Um, I, so the culture of dissent in the State Department is, um, yeah, it, it's, it's really, it's just not a natural thing for diplomats. Diplomats are, you know, we're, we're trained to be, to, to kind of 
be problem solvers. We're not trained to, you know, kind of spur on problems. We're trained to to smooth things out and prevent things from making it to front page news. I mean, that's our role. So, kind of personality wise, the idea of dissent is not really uh, is not really one with the diplomat. And then you you go to kind of the culture of how we get promoted and moved up and placed in new assignments. And a lot of that depends on your. Uh, we call it the corridor reputation. You know, so if you've got the reputation of being a troublemaker, um, you're not likely to be somebody that the people are keen to take on to important assignments. Um, and troublemaker know- is a synonym for scrutiny or asking legitimate questions. Pushing back against the prevailing Washington view is, is one way to put it. Um, and for me, you know, again, I came in with these perhaps Pollyannish views that you know the State Department was this great pace, place of you know um, uh, of thought-provoking, you know, challenging ways to take on new ch- new problems. I remember the blood telegram, the famous blood telegram. Yeah, exactly. Which, if anybody's interested in this topic, the blood telegram is a great it's a great story. It's a great book on it. Um, and you know, I had yeah, I mean, I had I had read about you know these these ideas of, of pushing back and trying to change policy, but but when you get on the inside, you, know, you find that even again at this kind of small level, and this is what I try to to show kind of lay people, people on the outside of the institution in the book, is that it starts right at the ground level. You know, I was a junior diplomat, and I was you know trying to write cables, raising concern about the lack of accountability and human rights violations happening, and this is even before the war. And I'm trying to push these up, and I'm getting you know the language kind of edited out to the passive voice, you know. Crimes were committed, atrocities were committed, and I'm like, those were the soldiers committing those crimes. Like, why can't we say that? Um, but but it it starts early, and it goes on at every stage. And there, there's this tendency to try and kind of maintain our ability, um, I guess, for you know, kind of our our credibility to be able to um, ignore these problems uh, as they get bigger and bigger. Our ability to 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 turn and look away. Um, you know, these are tragedies that happen. These aren't offenses and crimes that have been committed by governments that we're supporting and their personnel. Um, and if we don't write it down and we don't start believing it, then, you know, it isn't so. We can justify a way around it. Um, so getting back to kind of the, the dissent mechanism itself, there's the big dissent. There is filing a dissent cable. There is trying to officially register dissent at the higher levels. But then there are those small dissents that happen throughout, right? You know, and and they aren't always smiled upon. I will say I've had mentors throughout who have told me, we're not going to do what you're suggesting right now, but you keep it up. You keep pushing back because, you know, it's going to matter. And, and you keep, you keep making your, your bosses answer tough questions. You keep making them um, explain that away. But I was, I found that the most effective dissents for me were, you know, were long before I used the, the dissent cable. There was uh, when, when we decided, when I was filing the Child Soldiers Protection Act report. We have this another congressionally required report. We have some great laws that require us to actually pay attention to human rights. We just have really big loopholes to get around them. So uh, this was a few months into the war, and we're doing the annual report on the use of child soldiers in South Sudan. And lo and behold, they've been getting a pass for a couple of years. And my my reporting is they're even here in town. We can see them. They are using more child soldiers now. Um, under this law, the Child Soldiers Protection Act. We're required to to have consequences, you know, to have sanctions, to have implications when we find that there's been a use of, or in this case, an increased use of child soldiers in a country where we're giving military aid, you know, and assistance to the military. Um, so that was one of those earlier occasions where, you know, I was tasked with writing up the waiver so that we could continue giving military assistance to this government um, rather than have these automatic sanctions that come through if if we propose that they're having these these issues. Um, and that was one of those times when I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, and you are not applauded for doing that in the state department. And a move like that by a junior officer is considered troublesome. And I was told, uh, by someone in my leadership at the time that that would add to my corridor reputation. And that would make me look like a troublemaker in the future. So, um, I learned early on that dissenting was not popular and was not likely to when, when friends and allies in the State Department. Um, and that's why one of my hopes, as we look to rebuilding the State Department, improving um, improving it after these four years of a lot of damage under the Trump administration, I hope that's the kind of thing that we look at um, and that we look at improving and finding ways to facilitate it. Because there are ways to, to 
encourage that critical self-reflection that would really improve our foreign policy. And um, I'm I'm hoping that that's one of those things that we realize we did not have a healthy uh, a healthy culture of dissent. And that's one of those reasons that we had so few people, um, you know, kind of stand up and bring things to light. If you look at, I'll wrap up with this. If you look at the example of the first impeachment of of Donald Trump, which was over a relatively small issue, you know, uh, assistance to Ukraine and using that for political purposes, um, we had a handful of people who came forward under subpoena. Uh, but you know, we're lucky that we had one whistleblower who brought this this situation to the fore. And a lot of people came to me during that time, hearing wonderful State Department you know, civil servants and, and foreign, uh, foreign service officers testifying, you know, brilliantly and bravely in front of Congress. And, you know, they were like, this is really impressive. And my question was, there are probably a dozen or more situations like that, that dozens and dozens of State Department and other administration personnel witnessed. Why haven't we heard about those? And it's because there is, there is not a culture that promotes standing up and speaking out. There's a great irony there in my opinion, because it seems to me, in terms of a big picture of diplomacy, one really important aspect is flexibility. You need to have the ability to deftly maneuver between partners, allies, adversaries, and figure out what is in U.S. interest. And usually there's a complicated middle answer, but if the, the intellectual culture at state and in our politics on foreign policy is so rigidified, it seems to me we can't do good diplomacy without without flexibility. But we'll we'll get to some more strategy stuff in a bit. There are uh, good examples of successful diplomatic triumphs in the history of U.S. foreign policy, and I think most Americans hear the word diplomacy and maybe grasp that it's about negotiating with countries or solving international problems, but they don't necessarily understand the nuts and bolts of it. Um, most who haven't studied it or have been exposed to practitioners don't quite grasp what skillful diplomacy is uh, and, and what it actually entails and what kind of trade-offs are often appropriate in order to follow through on something or resolve a dispute in further U.S. national interests. So I wonder if you can shed some light on that for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and John, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I feel as though, particularly after I start speaking about dissent, I can sound pretty down on the State Department as an, as an institution, but um, that does not give the, the incredible people inside the department who are, are largely hamstrung by um, institutional challenges, uh, the credit for the really remarkable work that they do across the globe for the American people. And it's, it's hard and it's slow. And most of our successes are preventative. People do not see great success in preventing conflict. They do not see great success in, you know, in, in preventing, uh, you know, a, a, an undemocratic election. Um, it's hard to quantify the everyday successes of, of diplomacy. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you see the big, you know, the, the big takeaways, the, um, the big wins of, you know, let's say something like, God, I would refer to a whole bunch of them, but they've all been wiped away by the Trump administration. But let's say something like the Paris Climate Accords. You know, you've got you've got years of relationship building in all of the countries that were brought in to that, um, and you know, kind of un, a, a growing understanding over time and with expertise and with investment um, to build relationships where our experts on the ground understand the shared interests that are at issue that help us to find and negotiate. You know solutions and 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 uh, areas where we can work together. Um, but you know, it's, those are that's how kind of your your diplomats on the ground and embassies across the world and back in Washington. You know, they they support all of these big diplomatic achievements, but all along they're doing a lot of small small everyday things as well. And I like to give some some credit to the role that we play in helping Americans in, in challenging situations, because this happens a lot. And most Americans don't understand just how much we invest in that. And it's, it's not completely a separate issue from, you know, our really our bilateral relationships and the things we're able to accomplish, because those relationships that you build with counterparts in a country, you know, whether it's the airport officials or the, you know, ministry of tourism or the ministry of finance, uh, we build these relationships over a long period of time. So when something pops up that where we suddenly need, uh, you know, access somewhere or information, we can get it because we've built 
relationships over a long-term period of time based on trust and an understanding and appreciation of shared interests. So it requires a lot of patience, but it can quite often literally be life and death matters for American citizens overseas. Um, and you know, the evacuations that we ran out of South Sudan during the war were a really good example of you know, a time at which we were pulling every string we had to, to get access to, you know, to land our, our big military planes in the middle of the outbreak of a civil war and access to areas of the airport so we can get hundreds of Americans you know, processed and onto planes and taken to other places. And it wasn't just there. It was our relationships that we had you know, with the most basic folks on the ground in Kenya, Uganda, and other countries in the region so that we could land those planes and so that we could take Americans and, and others and um, you know, other al allied uh, citizens and, and other diplomats who may or may not have documentation or anything in their hands because they were fleeing a war and we could get them out and to safety. Um, and that was built on, you know, relationships that our defense attache had at the airport, relationships that our ambassador had at high levels of government. So she could call in those, you know, those favors and actions. Um, and, you know, it, it comes down though to, to how we use that kind of hard won influence. And one thing I saw in South Sudan was that we were really ready to bring it to the fore to help Americans. And I was very proud of that. Um, and I tell you right now, if I get myself in trouble, even as a non-diplomat, I'm calling the U.S. Embassy because they can, they can do a heavy lift for you if they want to. But in South Sudan, we weren't willing to use that currency that we had built up um, in our diplomatic missions over, over many years of relationships there and the humanitarian aid that we had used and the political currency that we had given that country in essentially its birth. We were willing to use it to, to get Americans out of harm's way. We weren't willing to use it uh, to bring forward accountability for the war that was starting. And that was because you know, it, we did not think in, in that short-term view that it served our interest to use that diplomatic leverage to press the government. Um, on, you know, in the build up to the war on, on some of those issues. So it's an interesting tool. Um, diplomacy is, it requires more investment than we're putting in it now, but it can lead to really great outcomes that are far less expensive and less potentially risky than the military ones that we seem to be defaulting to now um, on uh, kind of on, on, the, on the usual. That's important. What you just said is important because uh, most Americans do not understand it. And I think part of the reason perhaps that we're so reliant on the military way of doing things and not the diplomacy one is sort of what you said, you know, it's almost like uh, it's hard to politicize diplomacy for domestic political benefit. Um, and it seems like even the wars we've lost and uh, made quagmires out of are uh, m more well considered than even the diplomatic triumphs that we've had, but I mean, um, Biden's approach on on at, on foreign policy and on several issues um, leads me to be rather concerned. I mentioned this flexibility thing earlier, um, and I'm thinking about Iran. Here's a situation in which we backed out of a uh, an international agreement that was codified by the United Nations Security Council. Um, we imposed uh, economic warfare on Iran as punishment for their full compliance with this deal. Um, and because of the inflexible position that the Biden administration is in, they feel they need to placate our allies and partners in the region like Israel and Saudi Arabia. They feel they need to placate political hawks in, on Capitol Hill. Um, and I think that concern is preventing them from doing a, 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 a more diplomatic and straightforward, I think, problem-solving approach, which would be to move first or accept Iran's offer to move simultaneously. Um, and on China, I think also he's sort of boxed in on domestic politics to adopt a much more provocative and confrontational approach. So uh, how do you assess the way the Biden administration is engaging in diplomacy. There are some better areas. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the pledge to stop support of Saudi Arabia in its, in its, uh, in its war in Yemen. But uh, overall, how are you seeing it? I'm glad you mentioned uh, the situation with Iran, because what I keep coming back to there is that it's like a six-year-old's level of fairness makes it very obvious that 
you know, we broke the promise first, so we need to show up. Um, so I'm, I'm befuddled by that. Um, I'm not befuddled politically by where the Biden administration is, but I feel as though it's a really bad, um, it's, it's a bad omen for this idea that we can really regenerate our, our diplomacy, our diplomacy and put that back in the lead. Um, it also, I mean, a lot of what the Biden administration and President Biden himself are saying are are speaking, um, you know, are say, saying the right words and, and the right messages about, you know, we're going to put diplomacy first and we're going to reinvest in the State Department and, and rebuild it. And, um, you know, we're going to uh, reshore our, our, our you know, democracies around the world and take a leadership in that again. I mean, a lot of that sounds good, but I haven't really seen any any moves so far that suggests that that we're really going to to change dramatically on kind of status quo anti-2016. Um, I do see a lot. I mean, I, I think the difference in messaging alone is meaningful from the Trump administration. Absolutely. It's important to at least acknowledge the importance of our allies. Um, but I, I worry about some of the signals that we're sending. You know, one being that there really is not going to be any attempt to reduce the, the size of the military budget. Um, uh, I think that as long as our our biggest tool by you know just a massive amount is is military, it's going to be our go-to. And that's what's happened over the past couple of decades. Uh, the military has become our tool of first resort because it is it is well resourced, it is very visible, and politically it is, you know, it is a lot easier to demonstrate action with a military strike than it is with a big effort on diplomacy. Um, and that gets back to that kind of short-sightedness and inertia of foreign policy, which I don't see signs that the Biden administration is going to shift significantly from that. Um, I, I worry that, I worry that we're going to continue um, talking a big game, but not demonstrating a change that, that our values are really a part of our foreign policy. And I, by this, I do not mean going out and intervening anywhere um, that is, is not following uh, values that we, that we uh, support. Um, but I think it does mean things like, yes, we are talking a, a bit tougher on Saudi Arabia, but we're still not able to sanction the individual that we have have fully decided is um, is responsible for a very heinous crime on a, you know on a, a global scale. Um, I think that that should have been a no-brainer on some level. Um, I worry that I, I worry that uh, the strike in Syria without even consulting Congress is a demonstration that there isn't going to be a shift away from, uh, you know, willy nilly use of military tools and military aggression by an executive. Um, I was quite hoping to see some sign that we'd be willing to rein in some of the liberal use of our military. Um, and you know, th those those signs, particularly in the last week and a half or so, uh, frankly, had me a little bit down. Now, that said, I'm going to stay optimistic because I feel as though there are some areas where there could be a big difference. Um, and if there is meaningful reform done to the State Department and we are able to depoliticize a lot of our uh, foreign policy, if we are able to put civilian foreign policy back at the lead of our, our relationships overseas, um, maybe some of that can gradually change. But for me, I, I think we need to we need to really hone in on, on accountability, not only of our allies, but of our own foreign policy tools. And part of that is acknowledging and recognizing the damage done by a lot of our military um, uh, action across the globe. And I haven't seen any signs yet that the Biden administration is even willing to look at that. These statements that we're going to end endless war, but keep a small special forces you know, unit out there. I mean, that's that's just a way to to make it less transparent what we're doing. It's, it's not a way to reduce our engagement in conflict. And it's certainly not a way to lead with, you know, diplomacy and peace in the world. So I, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to see some change, but I don't see any signs of uh, a real shift in, um, and, and leading across the world with world with our, uh, you know, with force and fear instead of by example. I'm curious about your thoughts and the connection between strategy and diplomacy. I think the strategy that we have pursued, sort of grand strategy, the 30,000-foot view of foreign policy since, say, the Cold War, is so expansive uh, and uh, so uh, ambitious uh, 
um, and so overcommitted that it leads to inflexibility and a failure to prioritize, which I think are two very, very important um, features of, of diplomacy. So for example, on the Middle East, right, we have we have long-standing relationships that we refuse to revise under changing circumstances. Um, we insist that our, the, you know, the role that we adopted in the Cold War of um, acting as a security guarantor for Europe and Asia, um, that's something that we just will not reevaluate, despite the fact that they're not as vulnerable and in danger as they used to be. They're rich and powerful. They can certainly handle their own defense. We can still be friends with them. But I mean, doesn't this overcommittedness and this everything but the kitchen sink is is under the domain of US foreign policy? That means that like, you know, we're engaging in South Sudan and but we're also engaging with, you know, uh, every other country in the world at a, at a level that you know, it's, it makes it difficult to prioritize and to be flexible uh, on these things. So do we need a new strategy? I mean, is it the case that diplomacy can't really serve a strategy that is inherently militaristic? I mean, it must be where we're the global policemen. So uh, what do you think about this? Yeah, I, I do think that our strategy is inherently militaristic and that that automatically precludes um, you know, robust diplomacy in a lot of these places. I have no problem with us being in every country in the world. I think we should be diplomatically. And I think it would be a hell of a lot less expensive to have 800 diplomatic posts instead of 800 military posts across the globe. I also think that it would be a far more valuable investment because frankly, diplomats like me are a lot less likely to accidentally drag us into a new war than my military colleagues. Um, and it happens when we're out there not assessing the overall impact of our engagement. And I see this because while in theory we have civilian-led foreign policy, in reality, it is really militarily driven. And when the military is assessing impact and success based on numbers of bad guys killed and bombs dropped, but they're not looking into that the impact that those bombs dropped have on the local community and conflicts on the ground, on the on the stability of a region, on the levels of poverty, um, then we're not realizing and recognizing the, the negative externalities of that kind of uh, kind of engagement. Now, to have a new strategy that was based, you know, more on a soft power approach, and and and. You don't give me your, I know a lot of people are going to hear soft power approach and they, they think soft because soft power is in it. We need better branding. But that said, China's really going all in on soft power. I mean, they have, they have moved in on the economic engagement across the globe. And even on the African continent, they have an embassy in every country. You know who doesn't have an embassy in every country? The United States. You know what has started to shift even in my adult time as, you know, working on the continent over the last 20 years I've been off and on living in, in different African countries, I have seen that shift in the perceptions of, of China and its role from being one that was really transactional both ways to sure we want them to build us a, a stadium, but we still want to watch American movies. And that's still what we aspire to be to a place where today more African students are studying in China than, than are in, in any other parts of the world. And that matters that that impression and that relationship matters. Um, and it's really not expensive for us to, to to push out across the globe and lead by example. It might seem like a big increase in a State Department budget, but if you compare that to anything in the military, it's practically nothing. Uh, so it, it goes to reevaluating what we prioritize and taking a look at a much longer term view, which we used to do in a lot of ways. You know, back in the days of the U.S. Information Agency, you know, we we invested a lot more then. You know, during the Cold War, we invested in the information game out there. And, you know, it, it, it did matter. And, and it, we had a very different view of the United States overseas. And that positive view where other countries, you know, citizens in other countries want to live in a place that's more like America does serve our national interest. And it does so at a much cheaper cost than, um, you know, accidentally starting decades-long wars. So I agree with you. I think we do need a, a very different strategy. It needs to be flipped entirely on its head. We don't need to be out there policing the world. 
We need to hold ourselves account for the harms that the last 20 years of U.S. foreign policy have done. And I have not heard us do that. We have heard people admit that Iraq was a mistake. We have heard people admit that things are have not been successful in Afghanistan. But I haven't really heard anybody admit that this military-led foreign, anybody in leadership admit this military-led foreign policy is, um, you know, has has caused a lot of problems that that were not there before we were there. And I, you know, just wrap it up by saying, you look across the African continent right now, and the concerns about about terrorism and the investment in counterterrorism. Um, you know, why why are uh, different terrorist groups across the African continent a threat to the United States? They're a threat to the United States because they're going after places that are. You know, occupying and dropping bombs in, in their in their homeland. I'm not saying that a place like Somalia would be a safe and happy place under Al Shabaab, but if we're justifying it because we're trying to prevent attacks on the United States, I don't think dropping bombs there is helping us in that regard. What kind of ideas for reform at the State Department and in our foreign service practices would you like to see? What kind of approaches make sense for improving the way we do this? Yeah. A very big piece for me is more robust oversight and accountability on our foreign policy. It gets back to just what I was saying. I mean, and that goes from everything from, you know, a, a more robust inspector general's office to, you know, actually investing in and analyzing the impact of our foreign policy decisions uh, so that we can really look back and account for what were good decisions and what were bad. We're really not doing that on our military activities. On our USAID projects, I mean, their monitoring and evaluation requirements are insane. I mean, they are required to tell you exactly how many farmers they helped in this project and how much that cost and how long it took. And we just don't take the same approach to our military engagements, which is interesting since they're a lot more costly and potentially damaging. Um, I think that we do need some mechanisms that will promote rather than deter asking the hard questions and having critical self-reflection. And this is getting back to, you know, what the dissent channel is supposed to do, but it doesn't do. Um, and there's some boring and structural and systemic ways that, that, that we could change that. You know, we could, we could make dissent cable something that regular State Department officials can actually search for in the system and read to learn what other people are saying about our foreign policy. Right now, they're in a totally hidden box. You can't access them, even if they're not classified. Um, a second area is resource allocation. Um, if we want a better foreign policy, we need to resource the parts uh, that do diplomacy much better. Um, if we want to secure wins with peaceful, nonviolent means, we have to invest in those peaceful, nonviolent means. So this means shifting some of our funding from military tools to diplomatic ones, or at the very least, increasing the financial support for the State Department and, and for our development efforts on par with how we're, we've been increasing our military expenditures. You've got to at least allow the diplomats to keep up with, you know, the, the comms campaign to counteract the the really bad image that you've got going on from the bombs we're dropping. Um, although I prefer us to stop dropping the bombs. Um, and also resource allocation within the State Department. Um, if, if we're talking about really integrating our values into our foreign policy, things like human rights and democracy, we need to fund like we prioritize that. The Democracy Rights and Labor Bureau, it's kind of, it's our HR office, is basically a redheaded stepchild. Um, it is it is not taken as seriously as, for example, our, our geographic bureaus are. Um, you know, we need to integrate those policies more into, into what we're doing. And again, I go back to like, I'm not saying we need to invade every country that's not democratic. I'm just saying we need to prioritize what our messaging is on that. We need to be consistent on it. We need to not give military aid to countries that use child soldiers, for example. Little things, right? Um, two other areas. Reduce the politicization of our civilian foreign policy resources. Handing out ambassadorships to big donors is completely absurd. We accept it because it's been a longstanding practice. That does not mean it makes sense. There are lots of longstanding practices, like not letting women vote, that we let happen for a long time. Didn't make sense. We can change these things. Um, it would, you know, you don't have to have everybody from the inside. I understand new administrations wanting to bring in their own people, but you should have expertise requirements. You should have some experience. If you ask the Pentagon to take a hotelier and you know have him heading up a fleet, no, nobody would nobody would accept that. Why do we accept that with diplomacy? Um, people should have relevant skills and experience in order to lead diplomatic missions. Um, People who aren't contingent on a political cycle also help. That's why it's good to have professionals in. Um, that helps you 
you know, having more people from within the government uh, leading our policy and feeling like they have a role in it, which right now you often feel like, sure, you're the expert, but the politicals are going to make the decisions. If you empower the career people more, um, you're going to get a longer term view. You're not going to have these short term political interests drive uh, things that are might look like they're in our national security interests in the short term, but aren't in the long term. Um, and my final my final point, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this one, how to perform state. So I, I care a lot about this. My fourth one is we need to bring foreign policy closer to the American people. There are two problems right now with our relationship with the American people and foreign policy. There's a communications problem in that we do not sufficiently communicate why foreign policy matters, why diplomacy matters, why humanitarian assistance matters. But there's also a substance problem. You know, how does foreign policy affect Americans in Kansas? Uh, they don't know why it does. And in some reasons, it's because it doesn't particularly help them. So, you know, Biden's been talking a lot about a foreign policy for the middle class. And I, I love that concept. I have not seen that translated into, you know, concrete ideas yet from them. So um, I think that if we had closer relationships between our foreign policy entities, civilian foreign policy entities and the American people, uh, not only will we be able to communicate to Americans why it matters, but our diplomats would have a better understanding of what matters to Americans. And that would also have a two-way street. Um, there have been different proposals coming out, you know, having more diplomats and residents across the country right now. You'll have a diplomat and residents, some retired diplomat who's covering 14 states and they can't possibly have an impact there. Maybe we need, you know, people rotating through congressional local offices, you know, to bring the ties together through the between the Hill and the, and the State Department better, through governor's offices to have a better sense of how different trade issues are impacting them. Um, so I, I think I think we need to, we also need to do a communications game. And frankly, the Pentagon, the CIA, they both have entertainment liaison offices. They actually invest in ensuring that they are portrayed well and actually portrayed in movies and television shows, et cetera, et cetera. State Department doesn't do that. And Americans are going to think that's a terrible idea and a waste of taxpayer dollars. Somehow nobody's arguing with the Pentagon doing that. So I think that we need to prioritize that communication. It's not a new idea. It's been around for 100 years. Uh, but maybe one day, maybe one day we'll do it. Well, those all sound very interesting uh, and worthwhile. I would support a small program to train people to deliberately earn themselves a, a poor corridor reputation. <laughs> you should uh, wear it like a badge of honor. Lizzie, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much.